Welcome to this week's Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today is Simon Quinnage, Head of Investment Trusts at JP Morgan Asset Management, and from the home team, personal finance writer Kate Bealey. If you're a fund investor, you are probably aware of the excellent returns, high yields, and lower costs that certain investment trusts can offer. But even when a fund is really good, it, if it isn't suitable for your portfolio or if it isn't used in the right way, it won't help you achieve your goals. So Simon, first of all, when looking at long-term goals, such as saving for retirement, how should investors deploy investment trusts in a portfolio to help achieve this? Well, good morning. And what, what I would sort of slightly flippantly say is extensively, in my view, uh, investment trusts should be used. And the reason I say that is actually because they are long-term savings vehicles, vehicles that have served investors over time. And really, it is around time, not timing. The longer you hold these products, the, the longer the potential returns, the bigger the returns can be over the longer term. Okay. Now, there's obviously many types of investment trusts. What kind of ones in particular would work in a retirement portfolio? Well, again, I think a lot of that depends on, on the, 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 the age of the person investing and their attitude to risk. But you know, one of the things is, is around the, the, the benefits of the investment trust through the nature of uh, what it actually achieves or objective, what it's looking to do uh, in terms of whether it's actually investing in the equity market, whether it's investing in the bond market, whether it's actually investing maybe in alternatives. So there's a, there's a choice of products there mm. that investors can actually choose. Yeah, quite a confusingly wide choice. A very yeah. wide choice. I mean, yeah. there's over 400 investment yeah. trust companies out there. So there's a very wide choice uh, for people people to pick from. But then actually you've got the benefits, I would say, of the investment trust structure as well. Mm. Um, things like gearing, the ability to yeah. actually borrow money to enhance returns over time. Clearly the professional management, um, mm. the fact that these products are managed by professional investment management groups, uh, professional investment managers. Um, and uh, in a sense, the oversight that you get from the board, you have a, a, mm. a, a, someone between you, the investor and the investment manager keeping oversight of your money as well. Yeah, if you're picking one for the retirement portfolio, I mean, mm. there's obviously different sectors. Are there any particular Well, ones as I say, I think it really is interesting. It, it, it really, I think, depends on, on mm. as I say, really the attitude for, 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 for risk and yeah. how, long, how long you've got. But clearly, if you're, if, you're, if you're early into the cycle for saving for retirement, clearly, I would suggest you're probably more likely to take uh, uh, a, a, a higher risk approach to investing mm. because you've got longer. And it is, as I said earlier, it's around time, not timing. And also don't underestimate the impact of reinvesting dividends. Mm. That compounding effect of reinvesting dividends in the early part of one's uh, savings yeah. makes a huge impact in terms of the returns uh, further down the line. So I would suggest you know, for people setting off on this journey for saving for retirement, it's around, well, clearly in terms of taking uh, certain risks in terms of uh, maybe equities, in terms of maybe emerging markets mm. or whether it's a global fund. And looking to, to supplement that as, as time goes on by maybe moving slightly more into the more cautious side yeah. of things in terms of whether it's a balanced fund or, or more into the sort of uh, the absolute return type thing. Okay. Now, when you're choosing an individual trust, so you've sorted out your asset allocation yep. and you're coming down now to which individual trust, uh, is there sort of like maybe like a checklist of things that people should maybe look through before deciding whether to put, you know, an individual trust into their um, SIP or whatever retirement portfolio? 
Yes, absolutely. And as I say, I mean, we, we, we we're aware there are over 400 investment yeah. trusts to choose from. So, you know, there's a, there's a wide spectrum out there. I mean, one is obviously people tending to do their own research on mm-hmm. these, looking at uh, publications like your own. Um, but when it comes down to it, I think there's, there's there's two or three things to be aware of. One is one is looking at the long term track record of the fund manager or the fund management group that you're you're looking to pick. Be aware, I would suggest, of the discount or premium that the investment trust is trading at. I, I wouldn't make too big a uh, issue out of that, but I I think just be aware, be alert if a trust is trading at a significant discount or a significant premium to NAV. And the other one, again, just to be aware of are the fees. Just consider where the fees are, what the arrangements are with the manager in in terms of uh, how they are paid, um, particularly around performance, things like that. But I would make the point that the the returns you are looking at are returns that are net of fees. So they are delivered, you know, having those fees being taken out already in the past Mm -hmm. performance, clearly. But so, yeah, no, I think but key really is is, is the, the track record of the fund manager, the fund management group that you're looking to pick. Just as a, a sort of guide to investors with the fees, is there kind of like a an upper limit that they should not go above, or it was a range that you think would be sensible? Yeah, that's a, that's, a, that's a very interesting question. As I say, I think one of the things is is actually certainly the returns that you see published returns are net of fees, so those are delivered actually having the fees actually being taken out from the fund. So, but normally, uh, I, I think across the range now, it's unusual that you would find an investment trust with with a, with a fee of more than about one and a quarter percent. Typically, I know certainly for the J.P. Morgan stable, they're all under one or one percent or under now. So, and performance fees are becoming less prevalent in the industry, although there are a number of trusts that still have them. Yeah. Now, is there anything that investors should absolutely avoid that they see? You know, if you're seeing a trust, you know, this is a no-go area. I, I, I wouldn't say necessarily avoid. I think you've got to have your eyes open to the objective of the trust, what it's actually trying to achieve. Uh, I, I would say the other one is you, you are going into a stock market-based investment. Um, even if you invest in bonds or in alternatives, you know, the, the, you are buying a share in, a, in, in an investment company. So you know, you've got to be aware that the prices of shares go up and down. And I, I would say, as I say, going back to that earlier point about the long-term nature of these, these investment vehicles, I think you, you're going in with a short-term time horizon is 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 obviously something that I think people need to have their eyes wide open to the, the potential that they could actually lose money in the short term. Yeah, I mean, um, I suppose that well, I was going to come on to that. Um, what would you say is the minimum time you should consider holding investment trusts for? Uh, well, the longer the better. Um, but actually, I would say minimum uh, three years, maximum however long you, you can really hold them, the, the longer the better. And as I say, going back to that point on the, the income reinvestment bit, if you can afford to reinvest your income in the early years or throughout the, the, the time you're saving, for those, uh, it has an enormous in, uh, impact in returns. Yeah, okay. Now, we've been talking about retirement, maybe SIPs or um, other investments. What sort of other long-term goals could you use investment trusts for in your portfolio and um, how should you allocate to them? Again, I being a fan of investment trusts and working for the largest manager of investment trusts, I, I you know, a great I believer in them, and um, I think you can use them for a variety of uh, outcomes in terms of saving for children, uh, saving for your grandchildren, um, whether that be you know school fees, whether it be university fees, whether it be the deposit on their first flat or their home, uh, whether it's a car, whatever, just a start in adult life. Savings for retirement, clearly, we've talked about mm-hmm. um, savings for, for uh, maybe a mortgage repayment, a goal in life for, for one, or, or just genuinely that bit about financial security, that rainy day, mm-hmm. who knows what's around the corner, but actually building up a sort of a nest egg of savings and using investment trusts for that, I think makes makes good sense. 
Well, how you can do it? A variety of ways. As you said, we've talked about it uh, through pensions, through SIPs. Obviously, you can use the ISAs. Uh, investment trusts are fully ISAable, so there's £15,240 per annum at the moment uh, that can be done there. Uh, you can make a regular saving if you choose to do so, either in a, in a tax-wrapped uh, product, SIP or an ISA, or outside. Uh, you can do lump sums, and a number of management groups actually offer share exchange facilities as well. So if you actually do have shares in a single company or a couple of companies, and you want to diversify that investment perhaps into a collective such as an investment mm. trust, so you can use a share exchange facility. Okay, that's not something I come across. Is that something you offer at JP Morgan? Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. And um, I say so if you want, if people are interested in finding out, probably the best source for that is to go onto the AIC uh, website, and there's a list of the managers and the schemes that they actually operate themselves and where you can buy them. But that doesn't mean to say you can't buy these investment trusts through other platform providers mm. and elsewhere as well. Okay, that's interesting. Now, investors could also buy open-ended funds. So how would you see investment trusts compared to open-ended funds such as unit trusts for long-term saving? Well, clearly they're both professionally managed products, both collective investment vehicles. I would say that there are a number of differences which I think do add benefit for the, for, for the investor at the end of the day. One is that closed-ended nature of the company, fixed number of shares in issue, uh, essentially, the manager, rather than when it, with an open-ended fund, when you get money in, the fund grows in size. When you get money out, the fund shrinks in size. So the portfolio manager is actually having to buy and sell investments within the portfolio as money comes in and goes out. So for the portfolio manager to actually try and take a long-term time horizon uh, with investments can be a little bit disrupted by that inflow and outflow of money. So actually having a pool of investment that's fixed... Uh, for being closed-ended, um, you can take a much longer-term time horizon. You don't get the distractions of money c- coming in and out. Gearing, we've talked about, the benefit to actually borrow money uh, in investment trusts. Clearly, you only do that if you believe and utilise that if you believe that actually, A, you're going to get a return that's uh, greater than the, the, the cost of that borrowing over time. And you know you can get an enhancement from that, whether that be in the income side or in the capital growth side. So Gearing, I think, is an advantage. And clearly, you know, the reason we invest in markets is because we believe they're going to give us a superior return. So, um, you know, so gearing can be u- utilised very well. I think the other one to highlight also is obviously the, the, the board oversight, which you do get. You have an independent board of directors of, of an investment trust company. Their role is to act in the interests of shareholders. Their role is to scrutinise the investment manager. And their role is to protect the interests of the shareholders. So if managers aren't happy with the performance of the manager, they can make changes. They can actually change the management company if they so choose to do. And we've seen a few of those happening. Yeah. But it would be fair to say that um, in a lot of cases, open-ended funds, should investors want them, can still be good ways to save absolutely i mean they are collectives and they are very popular i mean you Mm. can see that in terms of both the size of the industry Mm. the open-ended mutual fund industry is in the uk is significantly bigger than the investment trust industry and the flows that go into those funds you know so i I think one of the key differences clearly is an investment trust is a stock exchange listed vehicle um and obviously you know a lot of people are not that familiar with investing in stock market listed Mm. investments so buying a mutual fund an open-ended fund a unit trust and a reich is, is is easy to do you know dealing with the management company or, or or a financial advisor yeah i mean i mean on that note would you say the of it any sort of investors who perhaps should opt for you know a unit trust or open-ended investment company rather than an investment trust and you know for what reasons yeah i i think well again two side i mean both are yeah, but both are investing in in stock markets mm. typically, so in one form or another. Um, so you know they both carry risks. I would say the investment trust, by by virtue of the fact that actually they are listed investments, their share price trades independently from what the underlying yeah. assets do. 
the fact that you do have uh, in a number of investment trusts the gearing side of things you know can can put them at a higher risk end of, of the spectrum so if people are looking for less risky mm-hmm. investments uh, perhaps in general, um, you know, the open-ended funds, the unit trust can provide a better... better perhaps better, less better, volatile, better exactly. yeah. that's right. Would you say it's fair, though, perhaps, I mean, at the end of the day, presumably it's the underlying assets of the fund rather than the overall structure that um, is the main source of risk? Yes, or? it is, although, as I say, the, the investment trust, the share price can trade mm. differently from the yeah. NAV. So, yeah. you know, you can you can be in a, in, a, in a fund, an emerging markets fund, that's actually the underlying portfolio is doing very well, but sentiment could be against you at the moment in terms of investor sentiment, so a trust could move from a, you know, or a discount could get wider, which is what we're yeah. seeing at the moment, actually. Okay, some things mm. to consider mm. there. Thank you, Simon. Now, this week, Kate has been looking at another kind of listed fund, exchange-traded funds, or for short, ETFs. These relatively new funds are growing in popularity among private investors, but they still use them far less than active funds. However, fund managers who run funds which invest in other funds have been piling into ETFs. Kate, why are fund of fund managers pouring their money into ETFs? Um, on a very simplistic level, um, because they're a very low cost way of placing quite strategic bets. So, um, whereas they might use an investment trust to kind of place a long-term bet, they might decide on a manager who they think will outperform and they'll they'll give them quite a bit of money and let them do that for years. And ETF is a way of making kind of short-term trade often or kind of making the most of, of a market correction or, or something like that. And because ETFs are very liquid and they're very cheap, that's, that's quite a good and efficient way of generating low-cost returns for their portfolios. Okay, now... What are the strategies these managers are using ETFs for? Well, well, they differ. I mean, strategically, they, they take kind of geographic bets. So often that might be short term. For example, um, in Europe earlier this year, we saw quite a few fund of fund managers buying European ETFs, but, but not holding on to them. Same with China. But then they also tend to take long term tactical bets with mm-hmm. things like bond ETFs. And that's often because they feel that managers or a few of them felt that managers, um, fund managers, couldn't add much alpha in this area or that there wasn't kind of much value in, in government bonds. So they buy these ETFs and they tend to hold those for slightly longer term trades. So there's a, a bit of a split there between short term kind of geographic plays and, and longer term asset plays, I guess. OK, some some, some interesting uses there. Now, you also asked the managers, you know, how they select ETFs. So when these professional investors are buying ETFs, what are the things they look for in a, you know, a potential uh, holding? Yeah, well, they, they tend, they seem to have a kind of checklist. Now, most of them don't actually like synthetic ETFs. They prefer their ETFs to hold all of the assets that they, you know, own. So that seems to be the first thing often. They'll, they'll, they'll look down the, the list and, and find the physical ones. Secondly, um, they try to look for uh, ones that are larger, more liquid, because often managers will end up paying quite a high price if if the trading costs of these ETFs are big. So if there's a big gap between the buy and the sell price. And then they'll just look at the things like the ongoing charge um, and kind of work that all out and see what the cost is like and then see if that compares well in comparison to, for example, a future or another fund. Okay, just briefly there, some of our listeners may not be so familiar with the ETF structure. What, just briefly, is a a synthetic ETF as opposed to a a physical ETF? 
Um, well, synthetic is where the, the ECF wouldn't, it would kind of deal in swaps and things, other contracts, so it wouldn't hold the assets. Right. Um, or it would... So it gets its exposure via derivatives exactly. instead of so investing in shares For example, bonds, if it's yeah. with a commodity, if you couldn't mm. physically buy an enormous amount of, of iron ore or whatever, you would have to buy the futures contracts yeah. of that. And so then you're taking other risk in terms of counterparty risk and also um, risk on the price of those derivatives. So it's yeah. slightly more complicated. It's not as straightforward as I've bought some gold and I own that gold. Yeah, or a basket of FTSE 100 yeah, shares. Exactly. exactly. Okay, that, that's useful. Now, you mentioned they're not so keen on the ETFs, which don't physically buy the assets they track. Are there any other things that the fund manager spoke to uh, don't like about certain ETFs? They weren't that keen on things that were very, very niche um, for obvious reasons, I guess, both because they you know, are less sure of those strategies, also because those ETFs tend to be smaller, harder to trade, and not that keen on commodities generally. And that was for the reason we were just saying commodities ETFs tend to be synthetic. So you, you take quite a lot of risk in terms of the futures contracts of those ETFs. But but that was it generally, and they were quite kind of accepting of most ETFs otherwise. Okay, that's interesting. But I was saying maybe we should add that um, in terms of uh, commodities, you have certain things like gold. There are a few options for gold, physical ones. It, yeah, yeah. Gold, And it, if the readers the check our IC top 50 ETF list, I believe there are some physically invested commodity ETFs in there. There are, yeah. Gold is the most common one, though, yeah. Okay, that, that's that's really helpful. Thanks, Kate. Now, Kate, you've also been speaking to managers of funds which invest directly in equities about one of the largest companies in the UK, oil giant BP. Why has BP been in the news and uh, why is it relevant to a number of UK funds? Well, BP's just released its results, which was uh, something that everyone was was kind of waiting for with bated breath those have obviously been disappointing to a to a point just because of the crash in the oil price so profits have fallen from 3 billion in the third quarter of 2014 to 1.8 billion and so this is interesting because a lot of UK equity income funds and generally a lot of UK funds will hold BP it's a massive FTSE stock and pays quite a big dividend so this was interesting in terms of how managers were going to see this mm. news and they've they've been quite divided really on, on yeah. how they've taken it on the plus side you can say that bp has actually said that it will maintain its dividend and it's slash spending going forward in order to do that so some shareholders are seeing that as a very positive thing saying yeah. look the yield is high we're going to keep getting consistent income here Others say, yes, they're slashing spending, but this oil price is going to continue mm. taking its toll on the on what is an oil giant. <laughs> and how sustainable can that dividend really be going forward? Managers, half and half there. It's a bit of a marmite stock then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Now, now, Simon, do any of the investment trusts at JP Morgan hold BP and what do their managers think of it? Yeah, uh, well, good question. I, I absolutely agree. With the, the Yes is the answer. All our uh, UK income funds, equity income funds, own BP. I mean, just picking up on the point, uh, it's currently yielding about 6.7%. Uh, that's quarter, very attractive. Yeah, uh, quarterly dividends. The recent results, yeah, no, very much so. I mean, the board's obviously placed emphasis on the dividend, which should give um, uh, investors further confidence on the robustness of the dividend outlook going forward for the company. As said, relentless pruning of operating costs, CapEx down by 30%, I think, this year, or forecast to be down. Uh, so, you know, actually, it's that uptick. If there is a recovery in the oil price, I think the, the, the view is that um, yeah, BP will be more operationally geared into any upturn that mm. were to come. But it just highlight one one thing, and just going back to yeah. the investment trust piece, actually, that um, 
as people are aware, I mean, obviously, obviously the Macondo uh, disaster in t- uh, 2010, BP stopped paying dividends. And, yeah. uh, you know, I think that does play again. And I know a number of investors were caught out by that decision by the, by the company, completely, obviously, left field uh, uh, accident, uh, disaster that happened. But going back to the two points, I think, for investment trust, and I would argue the case strongly on this point, is is the one around diversification, uh, having a, a, a broad pool. I mean, don't get just attracted by that 6.7% dividend yield on a single stock. So having a diversified portfolio and clearly collective investments, unit trust and investment trust provide that. And the other one for investment trust in particular, and I hadn't referred to it up until now, is, is the ability actually to reserve income they can they can put money away every year they don't have to distribute everything they earn in terms of the, the dividends they receive as a company they don't have to distribute it all in the, uh, in one go every year so they can put money away for that rainy day and that rainy day clearly came in 2010 with bp and i'm pleased to say it was pretty common across the whole industry, the investment trust industry, that actually those are times when investment trusts did use these revenue reserves that they put away to, to maintain their dividends in what was a tricky period for, for a lot of other, other board and uh, fund management company or fund management activities. So good benefit there. The other side is that actually, you know, BP, I think I'm right in saying, is still down about 40% since April 2010, um, whereas in general, the UK market, I think, is up by more than that number, actually, 40% the other way. So um, mm. you know, Definitely again, an argument for exactly, diversification. diversification. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, thank you, Simon. You can also see a list of funds of significant exposure to BP in this week's Investors Chronicle or on the website. That brings us to the end of this week's podcast, so it just remains to thank Simon Crinage, Head of Investment Trust at JP Morgan Asset Management, and Kate Bealey. You can find more on ETFs and BP in this week's Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a great weekend.